Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the Pentagon's software revolution is just getting started. In a software-defined world, you're never going to reach completion. It's an evolutionary type of thing. The technology risks you think you're taking may not be so risky after all. Almost everything that we talk about is an emerging technology in the government market is really not that emerging. There are already solutions that are well in use in the private sector, right? And so if you wanted to take those risks to try these new technologies, and no matter what your CIO says, FISMA is in all compliance. Some of the benefits are around standardizing the security program requirements or, you know, justifying cybersecurity requests and needs and developments to senior management, understanding some effective communication within the agency and, and who should be communicating and then tracking some of the performance. It's Wednesday, April 20th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Department of Veterans Affairs will get $10.5 million from the Technology Modernization Fund. VA will use the money to modernize the login system for va.gov and myhealth.va.gov. The agency will use login.gov on both sites. More on this later in the program. A service-disabled veteran-owned small business is in line for a technology, engineering, management, and integration services contract from the Census Bureau. A new request for information from Census says the winning vendor will create a solution architecture for the 2030 Census. The RFI says companies should be ready to integrate lessons learned from the 2020 Census. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. IT leaders from CISA and HHS headline the Government Innovation Strategy and Technology Conference. It's happening May 19th at the International Spy Museum in downtown D.C. You can find the link to learn more in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Air Force will look at restructuring the 16 software factories it has now. Major Christopher Olson, the military deputy in the office of the Air Force's chief software officer, tells FedScoop Air Force leaders have a variety of opinions about how to do it. Lieutenant General Bill Bender, U.S. Air Force retired, is senior vice president for strategic accounts and government relations at Lidos. He's former chief information officer at the Air Force. Bill, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. A lot of pieces at play there in what Major Olson is talking talking about. I wonder what the collaboration should look like as organization like the Air Force looks at what it wants to do internally and looks at what's available to it potentially in public-private partnerships to sort out all of these software factories and figure out what this looks like from an enterprise perspective. What do you think the steps should be that a service like the Air Force takes to do that, Bill? Welcome. Yeah, well, thank you. It's good to be with you today. And I think it's a great launching off point for the discussion. You know, I would say that uh, the the idea of assessing, you know, sort of midstream where we as an Air Force want, uh, you know, sort of the the enterprise of software development to land, it's it's a good thing. And so the first thing it's it's around probably problem setting. You know, there's a lot of good examples out there of where it's being done right, including in the Air Force. But the question becomes, where can you gain uh, some efficiencies and perhaps some better outcomes as a result of perhaps taking a reset and looking at an enterprise approach to it? So I know at Lidos, we have two very mature software factories and uh, an ability to, you know, sort of 
do our work collaboratively between the two and then um, you know external agencies including with our customer so for example uh, we worked with uh, krel the kessel run and provide a large uh, globally uh, implemented command and control called c2 imera and that program is really a crown jewel uh, but it was not uh, an easy lift in the beginning because there was a notion that you had to be on-prem and so today Lidos provides that off-premise uh, but very successfully and so that, that's an example of reassessing where are we today can we do it differently and gain some efficiencies. I'm guessing that because the Air Force, and I don't have any internal knowledge, this is just my understanding in, of, of the people and, and the, the efforts that have been going on inside the Air Force over the years, but I'm guessing that what happened is that these pockets of innovation happened across the department and turned into these software factories, not that somebody said we should have 16 software factories at some point. How yeah. does an organization go from where they are to an enterprise strategic outcome and and do that as efficiently as and effectively and as effectively as possible, Bill. Well, I, I think you're hitting on the right point. I think there was a notion that uh, every mission set is different and therefore we need to be developing um, our own software unique to that mission set. And while no one would argue that, there was maybe less thought given to the notion that uh, a lot of the procedures are similar, that there's uh, a basis for collaboration that drives better efficiency and, and more effectiveness, like you suggested. And so to me, I think the reset gives an opportunity, for example, for the Air Force to talk to industry and to better leverage industry government relations in a way that kind of says okay we are where we are let's take a look at that how would you recommend industry that we do this differently and how can we collaborate now across industry government academia and others that are all kind of in this game to redefine a, a future in a way that kind of says nobody's doing anything wrong today, but it may not be the best solution going forward. And so that's, um, that's kind of how I would step into it. I note from my colleague, John Harper's story that uh, the army has one software factory. And I don't mean to point that out as a cynic. I'm not implying that 16 is the wrong number. Maybe 16 is the right number, but what I'm getting at, I guess, with the strategic, the enterprise concept bill is how does one get from where we are today to whatever the outcome is and decide, okay, whatever we wind up with, if it's one or eight or 16, or maybe it's 30, who knows? But when we get to the end, we know that we're doing it in collaboration and we know that we're doing it with a mission delivery point for the Air Force as the final goal rather than just having software factories. Yeah, you know, when you take a, a complex environment such as the United States Air Force or any of the services alone or the department as a whole, the Department of Defense that is, you start to look in terms of, okay, so uh, what attributes do we 
not only care about, but absolutely need to ensure in order to be remain competitive and, and frankly, to be successful in a wartime environment. And, you know, for starters, I'd say speed, scale, and secure are, are three attributes that we want to ensure in all cases. And so as you assess them, uh, you know, sort of your digital modernization efforts, a part of which is software capability and software development, you're going to want to, you know, always keep your eye on the true north around speed, scale, and secure. Um, I think that something that government in general, and, and this is across the entire federal space, has uh, in some ways underappreciated what has taken place throughout the pandemic around uh, the ability to get work done remotely. They've seen it as a technology solution that, that worked and in some cases probably surprised themselves at how effectively. And I would submit that the next step there is to use that technology to its full leverage. And this would be to drive collaboration, collaboration work and different uh, efforts there. So for example, if you looked at the Air Force and 16 different locations, if you buy the argument that the technology actually allows much more collaboration between them, then you could standardize much of the work that you're doing and really only uh, sent, you know, focus on those unique mission aspects uh, in small teams, perhaps uh, co-located in a, in a, you know, highly remote environment. And so I, I would say that the time is right to, you know, sort of pull the thread on collaboration work management as an effort that, that kind of fully leverages the technology that has allowed remote work. How will you know at the end of that effort, Bill, if you've been successful? How do you measure success in that kind of an effort? One thing to recognize is that uh, in a software-defined world, you're never going to reach completion. It's an evolutionary type of thing. And so measures and metrics around going faster, the ability to scale with ease, the uh, assurances that come with secure. So for example, an implementation around zero trust uh, and the recognition that this is an evolutionary uh, instead of a, you know, sort of a, a period where you say to yourself, I've arrived, it's more, am I doing a little bit better every day? Am I faster on my ability to um, get authorization to operate on a network? Am I uh, more secure defined by fewer breaches and things of that nature? Um, so it, it's more evolutionary in nature and it's a tough one to answer, Francis, because you, you never really arrive. So the point would be uh, continuous improvement in measures and metrics that hold yourself to that standard. That's a tough one to answer, but you gave me a good one and I appreciate your time today, Bill. Thanks very much for joining me. It's great to talk to you. Thanks again. You can read more about the Air Force's software factories in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. 
That tech modernization fund awarded the VA for about $10.5 million still leaves a big fund for more projects. Dave Wannergren is chief executive officer of ACT-IAC. He's former chief information officer of the Navy, former deputy defense department CIO, and former assistant deputy chief management officer at DOD. Dave, welcome, my friend. It's great to see you. What's your sense of where the TMF is headed now? Because I think a lot of folks expected that with the American Rescue Plan money, we'd see these big awards for big projects, and they still seem to be these 10, 15, or smaller awards. What do you make of that and the way that the board would like to move forward, will move forward, any of that? Welcome. It's great to be with you, Francis. And it is an important conversation because as we've talked about before, you know, we had a billion dollars pumped into that technology modernization fund last year, like gobs more than had been in it before. Over the whole history of it, it only awarded like 150 million. But as you said, we've seen some incremental awards. On the good news side, we are seeing awards for projects that are really important, right? And so the administration talked about its priority. The one that you mentioned in the lead-in was about an identity management solution for government, cybersecurity priority. So they're spending money on the right things. And I think that's really good. But, but as you said, I think all told, they've now awarded about 300 and some million of that $1 billion fund. And many of those projects are just getting started. So I think there still is a sort of wait and see how everybody is doing from Congress in terms of, you know, I gave you all this money. You said you were going to do this modernization work. What are the results looking like? And oh, by the way, we're at the moment now where the administration is starting to ask for more money. I think about $320 million to replace what they've already taken out of it. And basically all the members of Congress that have any oversight over that, whether it's uh, authorization or appropriation, are saying you already have a lot of money. And so we're not sure until we see more results that we want to plow a bunch more into it. That's either the the literally what they're saying or kind of the intent that it seems that we can derive from the fact that they've been really hesitant to add more money through regular appropriations, right? Yes, absolutely. So you have the double whammy of, Congress likes to use the appropriation process to make sure that agencies are spending money the way that they think they should. Uh, giving a big slug of money through something like Technology Modernization Fund takes some of that control away from Congress. But so you have that issue, and that's part of the reason why I think it never got a big chunk of money before. But then you had the pandemic and everything sort of changed. But now I think the still questions are being asked that you mentioned. And so what are we seeing? When are we going to get to some of the big projects that really make a huge momentum shift? For the government, as we talked about before, the federal IT budget, $90 billion a year, a billion dollars is really good and helpful. I don't want to diminish that in any way, but it will not be enough to to completely shift the technology modernization conversation. So we we need to, in addition to the $10 million for login.gov, we need to see more money being spent on some of the big changes that will really bring IT modernization before. Because as, as you and I have talked about before, whether it's about the uncertainty of a pandemic or about the need to adopt emerging technologies or the other buzzword of the day, innovation. If you wanna be more innovative, you have to have made progress in technology modernization. If you're running off of systems no longer supported in aging cybersecurity solutions, you are not gonna be innovative. One thing that we can see is a consistent line, as you alluded to earlier in our conversation, really heavily investing in cybersecurity, really heavily investing in identity management. As Claire Martorana said on this program uh, not too long ago, um, is that maybe the reason why we don't see these big bang projects as we might have expected to? Because those can be done, as we see by this award um, this week to the VA, it, it, with smaller numbers attached to them. 
I think that's part of the answer is that if you could do bite-sized things that help make an incremental difference, why not go for that? But part of the challenge I think is bigger, bigger problems that need to be fixed, require bigger amounts of money, require a lot of advanced planning, require compliance with the government acquisition and financial management process. Those are less likely to be something that we dream up today. We go to a board, we ask for $100 million, and then we launch next month. And so if you've already gotten yourself launched on a, I'm going to move myself to the cloud, or I'm going to take that aging legacy system and replace it, you probably are already working on a plan for that. You've probably already gone into the budget process, and so you're probably not as desperate for a new source of funds for those kinds of things. Another source of funding that was intended when this all along, and I asked Tony Scott about this on the show a couple of weeks ago, was the working capital funds in the agencies. And my take on it as an outside observer is that the working capital funds within the agencies, I didn't hear anybody talk about them from basically the time the legislation passed until maybe six months ago. And in fact, one agency CIO said, we're not going to do that because that person didn't see a way to get the money into the fund in the first place to be able to then turn around and use it. Now, within the last six months ago, uh, last six months or so, that seems to have turned around completely, Dave. Do you have a sense of why that could be and whether there's a benefit to an agency to using the working capital fund versus using a TMF award or just waiting for a regular appropriation? So I'll, I'll stipulate up front that my time in government was spent at the Defense Department where you have very big numbers. Right, but I would say working capital funds. When I saw the the act pass, I thought the working capital funds would be the far bigger story than hundred million dollars in a technology modernization fund. We really have a system of haves and have nots, and part of the challenge was some agencies have other restrictions that sort of keeping them from putting in place working capital funds. Mm -hmm. But I think if you go to any agency like the Department of Defense that has working capital funds in place, they will tell you they are a huge advantage in being able to make sure the solutions aren't stymied by like year-end appropriations, one-year appropriations, right? That you're able to have some continuity in your planning and work, particularly in a world where we're unlikely to pass budgets and have to live with continual resolutions. So I think there needs to be maybe some fine tuning that gets rid of some of the impediments to some agencies setting up working capital funds. And then I think a great place for Congress to, you know, to be weighing in is how are you doing setting up those working capital funds? Because you said if you had more flexibility in how you did technology funding, you'd be able to deliver your own results. I think a terrific way to do that would be to put that on the Fatara scorecard, Dave. Just just what thinking out loud. <laughs> just thinking out loud. Um, you alluded to the buzzword uh, innovation a few minutes ago, and that is one of the words in the title of uh, an event that you and your colleagues are bringing up. The Emerging Technology and Innovation Conference, May 22nd and 24th, Act I Act, back in uh, Cambridge. Love the venue. Uh, I'm, I missed that event um, when it came off the calendar. So I'm really happy that it's back on and I'm grateful for you inviting me to be a part of it. I'm looking forward to that. What, how would you go about making this a different thing than all of the other things that you and other folks in the government event space do? Well, I think that the interesting thing about this conference, which is coming up May 22nd and 24th, and we're, and we're delighted that you're going to be the moderator to talk to some of our innovation award winners, is the nature of the work that gets talked about there. So we have like the you know senior government speakers that will be talking about what their plans are. But some of the things I'm most excited about is where are we actually making progress in adopting new technologies? And where are we actually making progress in driving innovation in government? Because I feel oftentimes agencies feel like they're all alone. 
And, and there really are huge success stories. We've just gone through the judging process for our 2022 Innovation Awards. We had 125 fabulous ideas that came in about real life progress that's getting made on innovation. Really interesting things about using AI and bots and mapping and other applications to do everything from treat skin cancer to figure out where forest fires are happening, figures out when shots are fired in the community. So I mean, real life things that are helping the nation. And so you'll learn more about all of that, too. Either through the judging, the submission process in that, or more broadly, just in the work that you do in general. Where are those areas that uh, innovation is happening? What are the technologies that people are using? What are the skills in the workforce that uh, technology leaders are leveraging to be able to make these solutions work? I, I think some of the places where I'm seeing some interesting progress is you know, the, some intelligent automation. So it starts simply with bots, uh, taking the place of routinized tasks that employees used to have to do, freeing up their time for more important work. And then it sort of builds from there about intelligent automation and the marriaging of intelligent automation technologies with better use of your data and better use of virtual technologies to try to synthesize things. And so talked about using mapping technology to find out where wildfires are happening, where damage is being done, being able to use location services to figure out where shots have been fired in the community. Things like that are sort of interesting ways to, to bring together like new technologies with better use of the data the government had to try to help deliver better solutions. And it gets back to where we started this conversation. If you're lagging on your IT modernization, you are not able to use these new technologies nearly as easily or quickly. As we saw during the pandemic, the people that fared best as they shifted to an all virtual world were the people who had made that investment to get them off the legacy. What are the things that you're seeing among those submissions or in other areas that should be kind of leading indicators for where this is all headed? What should we be thinking? We're, we're talking about April and May 2022, and I wonder what you would advise leaders to be thinking about or looking forward to for April and May of 23 or 25 or beyond that, Dave. Be willing to try new technologies. I mean, almost everything that we talk about is an emerging technology in the government market is really not that emerging. There are already solutions that are well in use in the private sector, right? And so be willing to take those risks to try these new technologies to the point that we made earlier. You don't have to like spend $100 million to do it. You can do small implementations that make a big difference. And, and so make that shift to start doing it and use the acquisition approaches that will help you get there. We've talked before about things like other transaction authority. You know, Operation Warp Speed, the, the rapid bring forth the vaccines was done through an OT. I mean, there are like tools that we can use to get solutions faster so you can try the technology and make incremental progress. And that's what we need to do. It's great to see you, my friend. And I'll uh, see you in person in about a month down in Cambridge. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. You can read more about the new TMF award in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available now on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows. And if you really like it, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps more people find the show. Only about a third of CFO Act agencies have effective security programs as of fiscal 2020. That's one of the reasons cybersecurity is still on the Government Accountability Office's high-risk list. Jennifer Franks is Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues at GAO. Jennifer, welcome back. It's good to have you back on the program. Last time you were on, we took a look at what FISMA might look like moving forward. 
what I see in this work is that the FISMA that agencies already have to deal with is something that they're struggling with. Is that a fair read on my part, Jennifer? Welcome. Uh, Thank you for having me again. And that is indeed a fair read on your part. I report highlights that of the 23 civilian CFO agencies, and we did review DOD's work, but it's not listed in in the first part of the report because of the the classification of the FISMA report from fiscal year 2020. But of the 23, only seven had effective security programs and 16 did not. What does that mean, Jennifer? Does that mean the agencies are struggling at complying or does that mean that the agencies are struggling with the actual security of their networks? CIOs tell me all the time, compliance on, on, from their viewpoint doesn't necessarily mean security. That is very true. And we do highlight um, in our report, we did do a interview questionnaire for the 24 CFO agencies and we interviewed CISOs and CIOs, and we asked them, first question was, how effective has FISMA implementation been for your various agencies? And then they navigated to talking about some of the benefits of FISMA and then the impediments, and then provided some suggestions on what FISMA could look like to enhance their implementation process, as well as some of the annual reporting requirements. And what we're seeing here is Yes, some agencies have varying levels of of maturity with their information security programs, as one would assume has a lot to do with agency size and mission complexities and such. However, what, what you're finding in these FISMA reviews and the scoring is based on the determination of the IG assessment reviews and how those IGs have a lot of flexibility in what it is they're considering in their review. They do have metrics they must follow. Every fiscal year, OMB does issue a new set of standards that must be followed by the IGs, but they are allowed some independence and some flexibility that tailors their work based on the various agencies they are in charge of. For example, in looking at four of the specific agencies that did indeed have effective ratings. Uh, One of the agency's IG reviews primarily um, discussed ways that the indication of the systemic issues did not have anything to do with the department's information security programs. Or one agency highlighted, they looked at the raw data and performed the calculated risk assessment to what should be their FISMA score. Another agency received effective ratings and it has everything to do with the IG looking at the consistently implementation of their FISMA, which was a score of a a level three instead of the measured and manageable um, at a level four. But that IG office noted that their maturity of that agency had a lot to do with not even testing above the level three, but they found their review to be satisfactory at a level three. So it it just depends on the flexibility of the IGs and what it is they wanted to consider in the scope of their reviews and managing what that agency had within their networks. I mentioned uh, your testimony last time you were on the program, you were talking about FISMA and how to change it. Is that flexibility, do we need more flexibility or do we need less flexibility? Because it sounds like there are so many variables there among the IGs, among the offices, uh, the CIO offices and so on, that I, I don't know if we get to a point where we can compare apples to apples, one agency to another, maybe that's not the point. And, and that's fair. And when we interview SIGI officials, so the IGs within SIGI and we interview CISA and such, they definitely echo some of those same concerns with 
not being able to compare results across the federal government agencies if too much variance was introduced. But what's happening with the FISMA scores right now is so much of it is, is based on compliance rather than assessments regarding their, their true maturity of their security, such as risk assessments and the threshold for resilience should some type of cyber incident impact their various agencies. We're finding that a little bit more of a clarification among the guidance would be helpful. We're not trying to reduce or rather suggest reducing some of the independence or even add some additional complexities with the review. But if they could look at some clear guidance and provide some refinement towards what's being asked, we're hoping that the IG's reviews would be able to give us a better overview of the threshold for the federal government agencies and what we really should be looking at in terms of mature cybersecurity programs. Getting a perspective from the IG side of this uh, it sounds fascinating to me. What did you learn from those? And not just the IG interviews, all the interviews that you conducted for this work. What did you learn from those that maybe you didn't expect to hear, if anything? That's, that's a good question. And to be honest, one of the questions, as I noted, was regarding some of the implementations of FISMA and what they would suggest to improve and and looking at the, the ratings and the annual reporting process. And I honestly, especially since there's so much attention from the Senate and the House committees on reforming FISMA and providing an update of such, most of the agencies uh, highlighted reporting requirements and metrics and wanting us to really assess them based on some security, real security compliance issues and security maturity of their programs. Not And they didn't really talk about modifying the law. And I, I was surprised to see that because when you give agencies a way in to perhaps make some adjustments or, or improvements to a, a law, one would think someone would take the opportunity to do so. But neither of the agencies found any issues, particularly with the law itself and how it was written. They just wanted to receive some additional guidance and some clarification on some of the reporting requirements and, and made some notes that would help their, their various agencies shine a little brighter with, in regards to where they were with cybersecurity. Another thing you said a moment ago that I thought was interesting, Jennifer, is that some of the folks that you talked to talked about the benefits of FISMA. And I can't say in 15 years of talking to CIOs, anybody's ever said, yeah, FISMA is great because fill in the blank. What were some of the benefits that people told you about? What's good about it that we should make sure we keep in any kind of reform efforts? Well, that's, that's good. And you're right. It was not until this report where I heard some of the stronger benefits and being in this world for a lot of years now, I do hear from CIOs and CISOs that it can be a undue burden and, and, you know, very time consuming and it's a manual process and it, you know, it comes every year. So it's, it's reducing some of the efforts that some of the security specialists can be, you know, monitoring the network and such. But some of the benefits are around standardizing the security program requirements or, you know, justifying cybersecurity requests and needs and developments to senior management, understanding some effective communication within the agency and, and who should be communicating and then tracking some of the performance metrics that was not really predefined prior to that initial FISMA um, establishing in 2002. Jennifer Franks of the Government Accountability Office. Great to have you back. Thanks for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. 
You can find a link to Jennifer's work in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put it together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop Podcast is back tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.